Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Moving out to Los Angeles and starting stand-up, that's a massive turning point. Finding that true happiness and desire to want to do something that I didn't have. Hello, this is Christopher Triumph with another episode of one of your favorite podcasts, Varvet International. And speaking of Varvet International, I think it's safe to say that of all the hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, Varvet is the one, as of right now, that is most sponsored by Stutterheim Raincoats. And I'm happy for that because October weather in Sweden can be quite grim. And I don't even care that much because I look so good in my green Arvid coat from Stutterheim. So find your favorite at stutterheim.com. That's www.stutterheim.com. And thanks Stutterheim for sponsoring the show. Today's guest is American comedian Tig Notaro. She's 43 years old and has been one of the most household comedians in the US for quite some time. Now, in 2012, she went through one of the most tough times that I've ever heard of, and she'll get to that in a bit. But one of the things that happened to her was that she was diagnosed with breast cancer. On August 3, 2012, she went up on stage on Largo, a famous comedy venue in L.A., and started her set by saying... Hello! Good evening, hello! I have cancer, how are you? Fellow comedian Louis C.K. was in the audience that night and he was so stunned by her performance that he decided to distribute Tig's show from Largo on his website, louisck.net. Yes, it's the same website mentioned in the Varvet episode with Todd Barry. And uh, Louis also tweeted that same night that this was one of the few truly masterful sets that he'd ever seen in his long, long career as a comedian. In some 40 minutes or so, Tig will mention a joke, the bee joke. And if you buy her show on iTunes, it's called Live. You can hear that and the rest of her show where she jokes about cancer, her other illness, uh, C. diff, that seems super horrible, and the loss of her mother. And the irony of this uh, awful chain of events and her show Live was that it sparked her career like nothing else. And now she's one of the most famous comedians in the world, I think. Now, as you'll perhaps hear, Tig wasn't feeling super well when we recorded this interview. So I'm really, really happy that she let us in uh, to do it. Now, 
without further ado, let's roll the tape. Do I need to do a check or anything? Yes, uh, that would be nice. Hello. I usually do this, uh, but if if you could describe the uh, setting. Sure. My loft on a couch. Just woke up and I'm eating grapes and it's, writing my book. Is this early for you? No, but I've been ill. And so I'm normally up much earlier. So I've been uh, not ill, but I've had um, dental surgery for the past three weeks. All right. Are you okay now? No. Tooth-wise? No. You're in pain? Yes. So I've just been kind of relaxing and I'm on medication and it's been a long three weeks. It's super kind that you uh, let us come anyway. Oh yeah, sure, sure. I just, part of my face is still slightly swollen, which is also why I prefer to not take a photo. I had to cancel a photo shoot for tonight because of it. Okay. Because the side of my face is slightly, not hugely obvious, but it's still slightly swollen. No, I can't see it. Yeah, it's not huge, but it's... It's not my my normal. But you're performing tomorrow, mm-hmm. anyways. Yeah, but that's not filmed or photographed or anything, so no big deal. Okay. Yeah. So, what are you currently working on? You're working on your book. I am. I'm writing my book. Uh, I've been writing that for. It's taken me probably close to two years, and um, I'm also developing writing a few TV pilots and touring here and there. And, um, yeah, just very busy. But I'm coming in on the final stretch of my uh, of, of writing my book. So that's really helpful to be wrapping that up when the other projects are going on. What can you tell me about it? It's basically about the four months of my life that fell apart. And... Um, explaining everything that happened. I had pneumonia and then contracted this thing called C. diff that can potentially be a deadly illness and caused me to lose like 20 pounds. And then I um, was released from the hospital and my mother tripped and hit her head and died a few days later. And, And then I went through a breakup in the middle of all that. And then I was diagnosed with cancer the book is just kind of explaining and raking through every little moment that went on and flashing back to my childhood and and explaining who my mother was and also updating people and where I am now and what's going on in my life. And so it's been very therapeutic to write, but also it's been a grind, but, but it's good. Is it hard to, to focus on it or... I mean, there's times where it's hard to focus on it, but it's more that I've never written a book and it's hard to uh, just go through such emotional stuff again, bit by bit. And it's just a different kind of writing that I've ever done. But I'm curious about that because every interview that you've given, in a way you have to relive it, I would presume. Well, yeah, but the interviews don't go deep into what happened. The interviews are very basic. Like, I kind of know the questions that are coming, and there's elements of the just the book that I would never go into in an interview. It's so personal and so private that 
it allows me a better chance to go into that when I'm alone and writing the book as opposed to in an interview and they say, what was it like before you went on stage? And how did you feel when you were diagnosed with cancer? How has it changed your life? I have to scratch my questions (laughs) now. Yeah, But, you know, there's just like certain questions that it just doesn't go as deep as the book would. So it's just a whole different, it doesn't feel the same at all. I think people will find out just such different aspects to the four months of my life falling apart than they heard in interviews. Do you know when it's coming out? Next summer. I think August of 2015. So you have a deadline. I do, but that's kind of what we came up with together. It's not like they told me this is happening. It's based on, I mean, I'm almost finished with the book, but we're planning that around a time that there's a documentary coming out about me. There's just other projects that are coming out around the same time. Okay. That it would make more sense for it to come out then. Uh All right. Yeah. Can you tell me about the documentary as well? Sure. It's being produced by this company called Big Beach Films. They produced Little Miss Sunshine, you know that movie? Yeah, yeah, I loved it. And uh, they also did Sunshine Cleaners and Away We Go and just a bunch of great movies. And um, they're more known for narrative films but they're they they've just been following me in my life since things have been coming back together for me just through my career and personal life and romantically and family and friends and just everything so it's been very interesting to have people that intimately involved in my life how long did they, they follow you for it's been about a year and a half now. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So they have, what, thousands of hours of... I mean, hundreds. I would say they have about 300 hours, which I think is a really substantial chunk of time. And so they're hoping to have that at festivals next year, Sundance or beyond, you know. So, yeah, they're hoping for the documentary and the book and all of that to kind of coincide next summer. Are you healthy now, except for the tooth? Thing? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely healthy. I've I go in to see my oncologist every three months, and I'm in good shape, and my digestive tract is back on track. Yeah, I just have this. I've had to have numerous root canals on this one tooth, and it got infected, and and so that's my only real health issue right now. But it's really been horrible teeth is uh, they suck yeah it's really rough and uh i'm on so many pills for this combined with you know painkillers and antibiotics and anti-inflammatory and then uh, along with pills i'm taking for cancer and things like that like every day i'm taking almost 15 pills a day and so it's kind of also causing me to feel a little sick to my stomach and so it it feels weird to be ultimately healthy, but to have this horrible tooth problem. And I'm hoping by next week it'll be cleared up and the swelling will be fully down. And you're working so much through this. Yeah, I had to cancel in Sacramento last week because I, I just couldn't do it. But last Friday, I had a root canal, went directly to the airport and flew to Seattle and did a show that night. So I'm 
I'm still working through it, but I'm having to rest and take it easy when I can. You said also that you're working on a couple of uh, pilots. Mm-hmm. They're just scripts right now. Yeah, okay. And uh, one is very autobiographical, and then one is just more along the lines of a pretty typical sitcom. I mean, hopefully it won't be a typical sitcom, but it's more along those lines. Whereas one script deal is for a cable network, so there's more flexibility and more freedom there as opposed to a major network sitcom. What's a typical cable channel? HBO, FX, Showtime, those AMC, those are the cable channels as opposed to ABC and NBC and CBS, Fox. Okay. Yeah. So it's more freedom than just saying fuck. Yeah, it's just the stories that you can tell and the characters and the, yeah, just the boundaries aren't, so strict I've been uh, curious about that with Louis mm-hmm. it seems like such a hard thing to pitch in a way or to sell to someone but that has to do with the fact that the ones who are paying for the show are subscribers or you're saying his particular show is y- hard y- to pitch well yeah mm-hmm. or wouldn't yeah. you say so yeah I guess so I it, guess I, I just probably take it for granted that people would like that well yes it's also really, really dark. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it, that's what cable is so known for and good for. And yeah, I don't know. I guess I haven't really thought too much about it. I know that it's dark and it's... But to me, because I know Louie and his popularity and I, I just am like, well, of course people would like it. I mean, I know his other show was canceled on HBO, but it still makes sense to me that people would want to see that. Yeah, I'm very uh, thankful for it, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's wonderful. But you actually got paid to write scripts. Mm-hmm. Okay, is that unusual? For uh, unrealized shows, I mean. Oh, no, they pay you for okay. a pilot. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you get paid for the script, and then the network decides if they want to pick it up, or if they want to make a shoot a pilot. And then you'd get paid to make the pilot. So you get paid to write the pilot, you get paid again to shoot the pilot, and then the network looks at the pilot, and then they decide if they want it to go to series. And then if it goes to series, then, you know, of course you get paid for all that. But yeah, you get paid all along the way. Are you in constellations for these two projects? Or, Or is it just you? There's somebody producing the cable show and... I was just curious if if you wrote in cooperation with other writers or if... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, I'm writing with other writers. The cable show, I'm writing with... I mean, they haven't announced all the details of my deals and stuff, but both shows for the major network and the cable network, I'm writing with other writers that are like Oscar award winning and nominated type amazing okay exciting people to be working with so you have all these writing jobs but do you gig a lot as well right now yeah i mean i leave town probably once a week something like that okay i'm not traveling as much as i used to before i got sick and everything before 2012 i was touring probably five to seven days a week uh, for months at a time but now i just will leave for a day or two a week which 
It's tiring, but it's not that bad. Do you do like uh, stuff in LA as well? Is yeah, I have a regular show at Largo in Los Angeles that's about once a month. And then I'll pop in and out on stages, kind of unannounced, to work out some material and around the city. In my world, I mean, you and Todd Barry, for instance, you are you feel so super established. Mm-hmm. But then uh, he told me that when he does like three or four gigs a night, he gets paid $30 a, a gig or something like that. Is it this? Oh, in New York? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in New York and LA, you don't really get paid too much. But except for Largo, they actually pay you really well. Yeah, okay. You get paid what you would get close to. I mean, a portion of, but close. It's it's like beyond what regular clubs around LA pay. But on the other hand, then it, on Lager, it's your name sort of up there that's selling. It is, but even at the other venues, when your name is on the marquee and you're selling the tickets, they still will pay you twenty to a hundred dollars a night, just nothing. But Largo pays really well. Is there some kind of cultural difference between comedy here and comedy in New York? You would say. Nothing that fully sticks out to me. I, I I don't really pay too much attention to that for some reason. I don't I don't know why. I've only spent time in New York where I'm just doing sets and you know, I didn't ever live there for years at a time and really take in exactly the difference between New York and LA, but I'm sure there's plenty of differences. I just am not somebody that paid too much attention to any no. of that. Would you say that the uh, Los Angeles comedy scene, is it vibrant? Yeah, I think it is. People say there's not as many places to perform in Los Angeles as there is in New York, but I I think that's, it's all relative. I think it's changed a lot. There's cafes, coffee shops, bars, restaurants, laundromats. You can kind of perform anywhere. And uh, I think both scenes are tremendously are you saying that there are laundromat uh, Mm -hmm. scenes in LA Mm -hmm. like you can do comedy in a laundromat so many comedians want to perform that they'll go into these establishments and say can I set up a microphone and do comedy here and a lot of places will just be like yeah sure knock yourself out and next thing you know there's a comedy show at a laundromat that's nice yeah so I guess that you're sort of doing good now economically. Yeah, I was before. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't like struggling. I mean, it's been over a decade since I was having any sort of financial concern or when am I going to work again or but I just am more out in the public eye now and but yeah, I've I've been successful and for quite a while I would say but I don't I'm also not an extravagant person nobody would my life doesn't look different than it did 10 years ago you just have more money on the bank yes more money in the bank but you wouldn't know it I don't think walking into my my place or hanging out with me you have an awful lot of books I do half of it's my girlfriend so okay yeah If they would make a biopic of your life, what would the turning points be? I think for sure when my life fell apart, that was a massive turning point. Everything looked very bleak. I didn't know if I would live. I had lost my mother. 
my relationship had fallen apart and I couldn't eat food because of my digestive tract and I didn't think I'd work again if I did live. I just, I didn't see any hope whatsoever. And that turning point of, I did a a set at the club here in Largo in Los Angeles and after I was diagnosed with cancer and it was, it launched my career to a different level but there was also the turning point of coming to terms with my body after everything had happened because I had a double mastectomy and I didn't get reconstructive surgery. I just have scars across my chest and trying to navigate through all that and figure out how I feel and how I feel about how I look. And I feel great and confident about myself. And I couldn't have imagined that I would ever feel confident about my body after I'd lost all that weight and had the scars on my chest and reaching a point where I was like, you know, I'm actually okay with myself. And people taking an interest in in me on a whole different level after I did that show and released that album, it um, turned my fear of never working again into a long-gone concern. Fear of working too much, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. So I would say that was a major turning point for of me. Of course. I've had a million yeah. turning points in life. And I, w- I was thinking before that as well. Mm-hmm. The first time you stood on a stage, would that be one of those? Sure. I mean, moving out to Los Angeles and starting stand-up, that's a massive turning point. Finding that true happiness and desire to want to do something that I didn't have for 26 years of my life. I just kind of aimlessly wandered and tried things out and did jobs that I I didn't feel attached to and did you do jobs for 26 years I mean, <laughs> felt like it <laughs> okay. um, I think also meeting my girlfriend that I'm with now was a massive turning point because I've gone through relationships where I liked people, I loved people, I thought they were great and attractive and funny and intelligent and all these great things, but I always thought, you know, when is this going to end or how is this going to end? And this is the first relationship where I I want to be with this person forever and I don't want it to end and and we're very much the same and focused in the same way and And so that is a part of me I've never seen. So that's a massive turning point. That's fantastic. It is. It's uh, something that I think my friends are stunned by and people that know me well. I think exes of mine, it's a little bit of a stunning... It stuns them as well. They're like, really? Hmm. (laughs) You know, but it's... It feels good. Are you married? I'm not. I would like to be for the first time in my life. I want to be. Whereas before I didn't, I didn't care, didn't understand the appeal or interest, but uh, we both want to be. And so again, that's, it's just new. This might come off as a little bit ignorant, but are you allowed to marry here in California? Uh, it's, it's not ignorant. You, you are, finally. They've gone back and forth. Okay. I think even if we weren't allowed to here, we'd probably go somewhere else and do it. You would be allowed in Sweden if you want to marry there for some reason. We should have. She went with me to Sweden uh-huh, okay. uh, back in uh, August. I think I was there. What did you do? We were in Lund 
Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. For the comedy festival. festival. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, it was so fun. I was happy to finally go. How was it? Really fun. The, the show, I don't know if I did one or two shows. I think I did two. Really fun. And the town was just so pretty. We had a great time. Do you like Europe in general? or? Mm-hmm, yeah. We actually, we went on a nearly two-week trip over there. And I've... I've checked out other cities and countries and here and there, but I always love going over. It seems to to me as a European that Americans are really sort of compelled towards it, in perhaps in the same way that we are compelled to to the U.S. Uh huh. But what would you say that it, could you define what that what's the allure? I'm sure Americans are looking for culture <laughs> and history to a degree that we don't get here. I do think it's sad that I feel proud of myself for having explored this country a lot before going to other countries and continents, but I think Americans forget or look over the fact that there's a lot of really beautiful places in this country, oceans and mountains and cities. Even my girlfriend, when we went to Chicago a couple of weeks ago, She thought Chicago all these years was just like a dirty, run-down city. I was like, what are you talking She loved it. She didn't want to leave. She wants to go back. And I, I couldn't believe that she wasn't knowledgeable about Chicago. Okay, so it's a nice... Uh, I haven't been there either. Oh, it's a fantastic city. I've been on a hair for like five times, but never... Well, yeah. But the city itself, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's got great restaurants and bars and cafes and shopping, and it's right there on the water. It's basically there's a beach right there at the the city, the skyline there. They have super long and straight uh, streets. I've seen that from flying in. Uh huh. That's impressive. Yeah. 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 If you're into that. <laughs> yeah, if you're into that, Chicago would be the city to. Go check out and drive through for yeah. a long time. But I hear that the winters are bad, right? The winters are horrendous. I've done shows uh, in the winter time in Chicago, and it's a painful cold. Your nose, your ears are going to fall off. Your fingers. It's. It doesn't feel like maybe they will. It feels like for sure they're going to fall off. Okay. But yeah, I, I I think there's plenty to see in the states here. But I think Americans are very quick to. To fly away to to see something beautiful when there's there's plenty here to check out first. I think so many Americans don't know much about their own country, and so it is kind of silly that they're running off to to other countries to explore when they don't really know where they come from. I've never been to Mexico. Have you? Mm -hmm. A lot of times. Uh, several times. Yeah, I went to Juarez, Mexico, when I was about eighteen, and it was dangerous then, but now it's You'll die when you go. Speaking of death, mm -hmm. well, not death, but uh, I was curious because I, I wanted to ask you about something that I haven't understood about the American society. It's the issue of Bo Obamacare. Uh -huh. Is it strange if I ask you to explain that to me? <laughs> it wouldn't be strange for you to ask, but I wish I understood it better myself. Okay. So I don't know if I'd be the right person to go to. I know it's uh, it's something that where people have to get 
health insurance or their fine, but I, I know the fee is very low. Okay. I mean, I'm sure to some people it's not low, but it's not like you're, the penalty is thousands or millions of dollars or anything like that if you don't have health insurance. But it's mandatory. And Would you say that it's a good thing that you... I feel like it is. Yeah. I do. I feel like everybody should have health insurance. Would you say that comedians in general have health insurance? No. Did you have health insurance when the shit hit the fan, sort of? Yeah, I've had health insurance for years. That's what I'm saying. Is like I've been a stable, successful, comfortable person yeah. for years. But I know that there's a lot of comedians that... Buy weed instead. Yeah, they buy weed, which I guess can help some ailments. Yeah. But they're, you know, getting to a place where you're not an opening act anymore, you're headlining, then there's, after you headline, trying to headline more reputable venues and make more money. You know, there's just so many different levels of comedians. There's people really struggling out there. Like any profession. Yeah, of course. But it's not it's not easy to make a living at this. And then, you know, I don't know that... Yeah, like you said, a lot of people will buy weed rather than prioritize health care. So. I guess you've had... You said that you know which questions that you get around the Lager gig, etc. But I was curious because when I reheard it now, mm-hmm. it sounds so tight tight i mean it's really well written <laughs> well thank you but was it even written or did you just take it from no i had i had notes of ideas concepts that i wanted to touch upon and build upon when i was on stage but i didn't to me it's still mind-blowing that people think that's well written or well structured and you know the bump the b on the freeway and calling back to that and then telling the joke, people are like, that's so perfectly structured. You didn't plan that. And I'm like, no, I didn't even think about the B joke as being a part of that set that night. It was just out of my kind of desperation on stage and in the moment of this feels very crazy to be on stage talking about all this stuff. And, and so I had recently before the um, performance Somebody had mentioned the bee joke, which was an older joke of mine. A couple of times I'd heard from people like, whatever happened to that joke? I always loved that joke. And I was like, I I always did too, but it never really did much. And so I never did it on TV or anything. And, And so when I had that performance, it was fresh in my mind from having run into these two people that loved the bee joke. And so when I went on stage, I, I referenced it and, That's it's funny because that night most people didn't know the bee joke and they're like tell the bee joke, and now people know the bee joke and so when I go to do shows they're like tell the bee joke, but yeah that that show was so such an accident. So if people think the structure and writing was good and the performance, I <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. I feel lucky that people think that. I'm curious because I saw, I think it was uh, some kind of interview from Stanford University. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
And you were talking about how people reacted to you uh-huh. after the four months or the the cancer. Uh-huh. I'm just curious. What what would you say that? How can I be a good support? Sort of. I think asking them what they want and not assuming what they want. I've written about this in my book about people. Well, and I mention it in my album as well. The God never gives you more than you can handle. People just saying things that they think maybe you're not a religious person. Maybe you don't want to hear cliches. I think it's just specific to each person. I think what's good is to ask people what they want rather than assuming what they want, what they want to hear. Because a lot of times people project their needs onto you and they're not at all your need. You know, maybe you, you don't need visitors all day and night. Maybe you do. And to ask somebody rather than, we don't want you to be alone. It's really very specific to the person. Was that something that happened that people started sort of assuming what you wanted? Well, people kind of do assume. They can't help but do it. I personally had a really great experience with how people handled things. And there was just a time or two here and there where I thought, well, this is bizarre how, how you're talking to me. You're forgetting who I am or you're assuming I'd want to hear something like this. But I was very well taken care of. But I think that would be the main note that I would say is to check in with people to see how they actually feel and what they want and and to I think the other thing is people get nervous when you're not doing well or you have a deadly disease and they become overly positive and that is very draining when people just railroad you with positivity and it's just like You're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Cancer's come a long way because it it invalidates how you actually feel emotionally. You have real fear and real concern. And yes, medicine has come a long way and research and cures and all of this. But there are still people that die, that suffer. and, And when you're still in limbo and you haven't made it through... It's, I think, helpful when you have a more grounded, real connection with somebody of like, how do you feel? Or I understand your concerns and your fears rather than just, you're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Because then you, I found myself going home alone, just thinking I was crazy for being scared or concerned. And it's a horrible feeling. I would say that the... uh the gut reaction to when somebody tells you that you have they have cancer would be to feel pity. Yeah. But yeah, can that be useful to you? For other people to feel pity? Yes. I didn't find it helpful. I think that's the other end of the spectrum is to have huge pity or huge positive anything. It it all goes back to just connecting in reality of trying to put your feelings aside because it's not about you. Even if you think I'm pitiful and you, or you feel pity for me or, or if you feel like this is absolutely going to be okay, it has nothing to do with you. It's connecting with the person that's not doing well and seeing how they actually really feel. I mean, having compassion is great, 
and having hope is great. I'm not saying somebody should come over and say, you're right, you're probably going to die. That wouldn't be helpful either. But just finding some happy medium between the two of, yeah, this this is a scary time and let's wait to find out what's going on. You said that you felt supported. Did you have a good sort of system of friends and oh, such? Yeah, and yeah. like I said, I had health insurance, I had money in the bank, I had friends and family that were willing and capable to help and and be there for me and people made food and delivered and picked up whatever was needed and even with all that it still was one of the hardest times in my life of course and i think about others all the time that don't have health care or money health insurance family friends you know did you get some kind of psych Psychological help as well? Did you get to see someone? I mean, I have a therapist. Yeah, okay. And so I went to him regularly, and I still see him now. But I think that's why it's like I, I was kind of the luckier. I was not kind of, but very much a luckier person. I mean, even though I had a string of unlucky, I also had tremendous luck and support and... And so I'm very interested in charity and giving back. And I mean, I had an awareness of all this before this happened to me, but it's heightened now. I'm a target for people wanting to tell me, just in general, their worst stories of their life. Like people are very drawn to... Has it been uh, like that always? No, it's especially since this happened to me. I've noticed people are very drawn to telling me what horrible thing is going on in their life or that they've been through, or I'm assuming it's just they know that I would understand and I've been through a lot, so, yeah. Maybe you should become a therapist if <laughs> if comedy fails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like to some degree I've I've put in some time with that, but I'm open to getting out of comedy and and uh, counseling strangers on the street for no money but i i do i don't i feel glad that that i am seen that way that people can talk to me because it is such a a dark place to be in and it's nice to come across someone or people that have been through similar experiences so you think it's a good thing then I do. I mean, to a certain degree, I don't want to be followed around and I can't keep in touch and and continue to to talk about or counsel people, but I'm happy to be somebody that somebody runs into and people just want to be heard and people want to connect and I don't think it's so bad being a person that someone feels they can share any sort of heartbreak with or struggle do you get fan mail oh fan mail oh yeah daily yeah and um i don't have the time to respond but i have a an idea of publishing a book for charity that anonymously putting out the fan mail and emails that i get from people to just kind of share everyone's story okay do you plan to 
reply to them in this book or just have the I'm not sure how I'm going to handle it, but I definitely want I feel like it'll be helpful for people to read because I know it's been helpful helpful for me in the way that my album Live was helpful for them to hear or my story was helpful for them to read about. It's helpful for me to read their emails saying how it touched them and what they're going through. So it's just a a cycle that's turned out to be a positive thing. I mean, it's horrible to read what people are going through, of course. People that have had a bad day at work or somebody that has weeks to live, that's who's writing me, and it's very intense. Do you have a ritual for this that you... Okay, this seems like to be something about cancer. I'm going to read that another day. Or is it just a free flow? Or? Yeah, it's free flow. When it comes in, I read it. And um, I don't know. I think that's how life is anyway. You know, it's just you take it as it comes. And so when people reach out, I read it pretty immediately. Because you're, as you said, you're writing your book right now or you're finishing it. Uh-huh. But I mean, do you have the mail on in the background while writing it? Now I'm sort of technical, but... No, I mean, I I take breaks throughout the day and I'll stop writing, look at my email, grab something to eat, and I'll come across the emails and read them as they come in. So Sounds fairly normal to <laughs> me. It feels pretty normal. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just briefly uh, go back to your background? Mm-hmm. You were born in 1971. What do you know about your birth? Just that it happened in Jackson, Mississippi, at St. Dominic's Hospital. I don't really know. Do you know something about my birth that I don't know? No, but I know tons of stuff about mine. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I had jaundice. What's that? When you're yellow. Oh, okay. I had a full head of hair. That's all I know. Yeah. How was your upbringing? It was fun. It was crazy. It was hard. I definitely experienced my share of hard times growing up. And In what way? Oh, my gosh. A million ways that I don't have time to go into. <laughs> But just a million things. I was also, I struggled in school. I failed three grades and dropped out of high school. And I just... Growing up in a town outside of Houston, Texas, and it wasn't really the environment that was inspiring or that I connected with, really. I met some great friends and had really great times, and but as soon as I could, I got out of there. And I feel like I started to do a lot better in life. But as far as like family and growing up and stuff, I, my mother and I were very close and loved each other very much but we also had a lot of uh conflict and she was very wild and did her own thing and it's cool but other times you just want her to be your mother okay so she was sort of a friend to you growing up or i mean she was my mother but she just was she was wild very wild she was funny she was artistic she was she liked to party she liked to do her own thing you know she was just very wild And so we just kind of had an up-and-down relationship over the years. I read that you dropped out of school as well, but what was your was the problem that you weren't there? or I wasn't there. I wasn't interested. I just... No interest. What did interest you? Music. I played guitar. I listened to albums, you know. I was really into the Beatles and the Pretenders. And I just... 
I was just all about music. I had no interest in school. It was painful for me to be there. And then you you started sort of doing small jobs instead mm-hmm. of going to school. Or mm-hmm. what yeah. did you do? Coffee shops and daycare, babysitting type things, and worked at a pizza parlor and just miscellaneous jobs that weren't going anywhere. Did you move to LA? No, I moved What? to Colorado. I think I was around eighteen, nineteen, somewhere in there. Why did you end up in Colorado? My mother went to college in Colorado, and I grew up always hearing about it. And in my head, Colorado was the most beautiful, perfect place to be. And my mother was so fond of it. And when I dropped out of high school, this friend of mine and I took off to Colorado. I went camping and just traveling and took a journey and I just fell in love with it and I went home and packed my bags and moved to Colorado. Okay. What town or Denver. City? Denver. Okay. Mm-hmm. You grew up both in Mississippi and Texas. Mm-hmm. At what time did you move to Texas? When I was five. Okay, so that was fairly early on. Mm-hmm. Do you have memories even of Mississippi? Oh yeah. Yep, climbing on the roof of our house and jumping in leaves and climbing trees and going to the beach and I have a lot of memories. Plus, I also went back every summer to spend time with my relatives that stayed there. Would you like to recommend something? I love the band Frightened Rabbit. Okay, Frightened Rabbit. Frightened Rabbit. Okay. My friend Henry Phillips has a cooking show on youtube that's very funny this is good stuff keep going <laughs> i love the comedian maria bamford those are some things that amuse me and what i would recommend who would you like me to interview here on varvet international chrissy hyde okay you know who she is yeah right? yeah, yeah okay the pretenders yeah i always love her interviews thank you very much for your time yeah thank you for your time I just uh, realized that Maria Bamford's special uh, called Special, Special, Special is available on Netflix. So I think I'll see that tonight. Uh, go buy Tignotaur's album on iTunes. That's five bucks and some of it goes to cancer research. And uh, I think uh, most of us have some kind of relation to that sickness and uh, it's awful. So yes, cancer research is a good thing. Okay, uh, thank you for listening. And guest next week will be British actor uh, from Lord of the Rings and uh, last Dominic Monaghan. He's also a TV show host. And uh, the people who did this was uh, editor Louise Olson, producer Christina Jorling Biro, and myself Christopher Triumph. And sponsoring the show is stutterheim.com. Bye-bye. Talk to you in a week. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. 
the world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.